the life, this windbag, this one who boasts, the one who fails at love. This is the one who always has something to say. If they walk up and you're in a discussion with somebody else, they will have that discussion before it's all over with. Because it's really important that you hear what they have to say. Love does not boast. In other words, that person has failed at love. The other one he says here is love is not arrogant. That word is used seven different times in the entire New Testament. Six of them are in the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Here's a church who had a problem with arrogance or with pride. Actually, the better way for us to get this, that picturesque language here, uh, the word might be puffed up. Um, let me just let me give you this assignment, okay? Um, let's all watch the NBA Finals, at least a couple of games, enough to see how this plays out, all right? Because we know the Spurs won't last long against LeBron and his sisters. Um, but what I want you to watch is when, when the heat of the moment, not the heat team, but when the heat of the moment is on athletically in competition and something's going in, one of those guys from either team makes a huge play, here's what you're going to see. He'll throw his chest out and he'll pop himself. Whoa, look at me, I'm awesome. Watch how many times that happens in the NBA playoffs. That's this word. Maybe another way, for those of you who are hunters, you, you ever gone turkey hunting in the spring? You know, one of the, first of all, eating a turkey, if you look at a wild turkey, that's like eating a buzzard almost. They look almost the same. Why would you even in the first place want to do that, right? Well, part of the answer to that is when those turkeys uh, go into uh, season, the male, it's always the males, the male starts strutting around, right? And he Pops himself up and his feathers get out and he fans out those tail feathers. Now that's a decent looking bird. That's the picture of this word. The puffed up, the, oh, look at me. I am incredible. That's this person. Now it may be hard for you to make the leap into how that fits into the church world and what Paul's talking about here. So let me see if I can help kind of bring it back down to earth for us because those two stand together. This is an issue of pride. The answer to that is humility, and we'll come to that in a little bit. But the idea here is that this is an individual who is so full of themselves that they're always promoting themselves, especially in the pushing others down around them to diminish who the other person is. Together, these two ideas underscore a self-promoting and an overly inflated perception of oneself that serves to diminish other people. On Interstate 45, heading north out of Conroe, just before you get into Huntsville, you can see from several miles away on the east side of the road this big, tall, white statue. Anybody seen that? Who is the statue of? Sam Houston. As my aunt is always quick to correct me, she works at the Sam Houston Statue Visitor Center. It's General Sam Houston. I want you to think about that statue. 
You see it from miles away. The reality of it all is what Paul's talking about here. This person, the one who is boastful and arrogant, this person wants to create a statue of himself like that one. And they want that statue to dominate the landscape of your life. It's not just enough to say, I'm somebody. I need a statue of me. This person, where love fails here, this person wants that statue to dominate your life's landscape. Life's full of these kind of people. I don't know why it is, but historically what I've found as a youth minister especially, I probably counseled hundred or more young girls who had somehow hooked up with some guy who was this guy. It was always all about him. It was always about her being his and about her doing things his way. The problem with that, with teenage guys, is they grow up to be adult men and they have the same perceptions. This is the picture of the person in those days. And I'm thinking of one girl particularly who grew up in a, a tough family situation. She was one of the friends. Uh, she was a friend of one of my boys in school. And she was a great kid. And she, you know, she was trying to make something of her life. And she was smart and pretty and had all of that stuff going for her. And she hooked up with one of these guys. And he just sucked the life out of her. And I counseled her many times to try to say, look, he says he loves you, but he's not treating you like he loves you. He's treating you like you are his property. Then he started beating on her. Now, I got to tell you, there are times when I want to take my preacher persona and park it and go do a little backstreet business with guys. And this was one of those times. I had several guys in the church, and we were ready to go set this kid down and teach him the way of the Lord, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Whatever else you want to call behavior like that, it's not love. It's self-motivated. It is, I want you, and I'm going to keep you down, because keeping you down makes me look better. Or feel better about me. If I could say anything and have our teenage girls hear me. If a guy treats you like that. You need to kick him to the curb. And if you can't do that. You come get me and we'll get several guys from around here. And we'll kick him to the curb for you. This kind of approach is a destructive force in church. It kills church. These people who the only way they can do anything for themselves to make themselves feel better is to tear somebody else down. It kills us. It kills us inside and it kills us outside. Paul is talking to a church here. And one of the things we always have to remember about Paul and the way he writes all of his epistles, he is doggedly evangelistic. He is always worried about what's happening inside the church and he writes to correct where they're wrong. But in the back of his mind, always in the back of his mind, is how the witness of the church is impacting the community at large. And so when a church or denomination gets the reputation of hacking on their members 
The world at large says, I don't need any of that. I get that in my family. I get that in my office. I get that at school. Why would I go to church so somebody could hack on me? And so they don't. And that's why today, across the Baptist world, more chairs are empty than they are full. And we can't understand why people won't take the good news that we're putting out there. When you engage on hacking somebody else, let me tell you something, love has failed. When you engage in hacking on somebody else, love has already failed. Now, this is a good time for me to come back now and bring a little balance to the force, okay? I started this whole series on Easter Sunday, John 3, 16, and I, if I said it once, I said it a dozen times that day, love wins. And it does. Except when it doesn't. Because sometimes it doesn't. In a text exchange this morning, Teresa and I, back and forth. By the way, she's not here today. She has not left me. You know, Thursday's wedding day in our family, and so she's over there trying to get last-minute wedding stuff done with Lauren. Um, and so we were exchanging texts back in, in our broader family, the extended family unit. We were reminded again today that sometimes love doesn't win. And you don't have to look into my family. You can see it in your families. You see, the reality is that when love is plugged in, it wins. The problem with that is in relationships, it's got to be plugged in from both sides. And in this case, what we find when it comes to church and how we do what we do, if we on our side refuse to act in love and unlove wins the day for us, then people get beat up. I was reminded of that this week. I was reading an article. It was written by one of the guys in Baptist life who has risen to the top of the heap. Okay? Um, and because of that, he has a pretty loud mouthpiece. Whenever he writes an article, uh, lots of people read it. And I was reading it. And it was full of vile, hated Hatred, uh, what's the right? Hateful kind of comments about them stinking, no good, dirty, rotten. Well, I'm going to tell you who he was, who they were. You can fill in the blank. Now, I want to tell you that I was surprised, but I was reading from this muckety muck in Baptist life. But the reality is, I spent two weeks with him in Israel on a tour. I'm not at all surprised. That's all he talked about while we were gone. Now, you're thinking I'm hacking on him. That's not the case. He hacked himself with that. What I want us to get is when we start engaging in verbally dissecting our brothers and sisters in Christ, love has failed. And it often is no more than the windbag, puffed-up person who just needs to feel better about who they are. Let me give you a great example 
of what this is and how we fix it. I entitled this sermon, Meet Me at the Well. And the reason I did that is because there's a great passage of Scripture that I think uh, actually has three different players in it. Two individuals and a group of people. This is in John chapter 4. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to try to get through this relatively quickly because time's rapidly running away from me. But John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus and his encounter with the woman at the well. Now, I'm going to tell you before it's all said and done, this woman at the well was a four-time loser. All right? There's four strikes against her that, you know, here's one of them. We don't even know her name. We can look through Scripture and we can find people's names who don't seem to matter too much in the overall scheme of biblical history. We don't even know her name. She gets a whole chapter. But there's a reason she doesn't get a name. It's because she was a Samaritan. On top of that, she was a woman. There's two strikes right there. In that story, you know the story. Jesus and his disciples are in one place. The heat's starting to come on them a little bit. Jesus is now starting to raise a little bit of awareness in some of the uh, religious leaders, and it's not necessarily good stuff for them. And so Jesus says, time for us to go. So they move, and they go to another part of uh, the land there. And Scripture says in John 4 that Jesus says they needed to go through Samaria. Now, I'm intrigued by that. Because no good Jew would go through Samaria no matter how bad his schedule was. He wouldn't go through Samaria because, after all, in Samaria are there stinking, no good, dirty, rotten Samaritans. No good Jew would go there. So they go through there. And they get there. And you know the disciples can't be happy about that. You know, you know the disciples are like us. Sometimes God makes them do stuff they didn't necessarily want to do either. And so they're going through there, and now Jesus gets there, and Jesus <laughs> sends them into town to get food. Oh, my goodness, are you kidding me, Jesus? We're in Samaria. Is that not bad enough? Now we've got to go deal with Samaritans. While they're gone, Jesus is hanging out at the well because he's thirsty. It's a good place to go when you're thirsty. Unless you're a Samaritan woman who's an outcast and somebody's there. But that's the scenario. She shows up. We know how all of that goes. So I want to take you to verse 27, John chapter 4. And this is the disciples. This is the first of those three people or characters in this little drama. Just then his disciples came back. Jesus had been talking with this woman. Just then his disciples came back. Listen to this. And they marveled that he was talking with the woman. <laughs> In other words, the disciples thought to themselves, well, Jesus flipped his lid. What's he doing? Let me get behind that. Let me put it back in 1 Corinthians context for you. We don't talk to women. But these disciples are a lot like us. They're sophisticated enough. They don't necessarily say what they're thinking. And so Scripture is careful to tell us. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? In other words, talking to the woman. What do you want? They didn't say that, but you can be sure they were thinking that. Just like good Southeast Texas Baptists. Or, no one neither did they say to Jesus, why are you talking with her? In other words, they took all of that stuff about what was going on with them and they parked it in their heads, in their hearts, but they never said a word. But in the meantime, they had already written this woman off. 
And it sounds like they were having a little bit of trouble with Jesus, too. (laughs) How do we do that? What these disciples did, how do we do that to people? Who are those dirty people in your life? The ones who don't deserve even a discussion. The ones who walk into a room and you treat them as if they're dead. Yeah, we got a problem with being the disciples, I'm afraid. So when I say meet me at the well, I don't recommend that you meet me the way they did. Jesus is the other player here. Look at him, how he meets her. Because I'm going to tell you, Jesus pictures us how love wins. Because Jesus goes here, and I'm not going to take time to read the whole chapter. You can go back and do that. But as he goes, first of all, he goes there in the first place. With him, there is no untouchable, unapproachable territory. You know, not long after I got here, I was I told y'all that I was driving. I just take off and drive, you know, figuring out where I lived in the area. You know, there's some places I was told don't go there. I get that. I've been there. I'd already been there when they told me that. I get that, okay? Except I don't get that. What places are off limits? Because the people there don't deserve love. Apparently, Jesus didn't think anybody was because he went to Samaria of all of the God-forsaken places to go. Samaria? So he went where she was, and he met her where she was, but he was not at all going to leave her where she was. That's what love does. Love refuses to alienate, to diminish, to walk away from. It always meets the person where they are, but it is never content to leave them in a diminished state. And the results of that are incredible. Here's a woman who had been kicked out of every part of life. And she engages with Jesus. If there was ever anybody who had the right to diminish somebody else, it ought to be Jesus. Paul tells us in Philippians, he left the splendor of heaven. And he took on this dirty, rotten, no good, sorry human flesh because of love. If anybody had the right to be elevated, it was him. But when I say meet me at the well, I mean meet me like he does because he comes to the well and he strips aside all of that stuff of who he is and he offers who he is. And it changes her life. And she drops her water jar. She runs into town, according to John's gospel. And she tells, I love this. You come see a man who told me everything about everything I've ever done. And you know those village people were looking at her going, we know everything you've always done. That's why you're out there in the middle of the day, not when we are. She says, could it be that he's the Christ? Of all the places for somebody to figure out who Jesus was, it was in Samaria. Nobody knows the need for a Savior like a person who is diminished by other people. And love wins with those people. 
unless we keep it locked up for ourselves. So I want to invite you to meet me at the well. And let's see love win. For God's glory, let's see love win in the lives of people. I don't want us to come like the disciples did. I want us to come like Jesus did. And the key to all of that, you ready for this? The key to all of that working right is to remember that you are always the woman at the well. Always. You're the one who needs help. I'm the one who needs help. And if it's not for Jesus himself or his disciples rightly loving one another, nobody gets love. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, among other things, says, let this mind be in you as it was in Christ. Consider other people as more important than yourself. It was in October of 1986, excuse me, of 87, October 14th to be exact, in a town 20 miles from where I grew up, the nation's attention was focused for 58 hours on a little backyard well in Midland, Texas, when a little toddler, not even two years of age, named Jessica, walked out in the backyard. Her mom went in to answer the phone, and Jessica fell 22 feet down a well that was drilled in the backyard. It was the come out party, coming out party for CNN, because for 58 hours, the whole United States was glued to the television set, watching as those experts in drilling tried to get that little girl out of that well. I'm amazed at what I've heard about that and those people. One guy who was a supervisor for the U.S. drilling mine safety or whatever, he, he finally was called in from New Mexico. They brought him in because every resource they had was being put into that little hole in the ground where that 18-month-old little girl fell in. What a great picture of the way it ought to be for us as a church. We, the experts in love because of Jesus Christ, are called to meet around a well where somebody has fallen in and they are helpless beyond being helpless. And we take none other than the love of Jesus Christ that has changed us. We take it and we insert it into that person's situation for the glory of God. Except when we don't. Because we all know it's really a lot easier just to sit around and make fun of them. Let's pray. Lord, we really need help. I know this is not just us. It is the church of America of this day. We sit back and we throw hand grenades at one another. And unlove wins. It breaks your heart, we know. So help us to get it right. Help us to have a good solid dose of self-inspection today.
where we have been guilty. Please help us to be ashamed. Give us compassion. Give us an investment heart that refuses to walk past those people who have been beat up by life. Help us get this right. And start it now in us is our prayer in Jesus' name.